Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, you're in my house. We're broadcasting from home. And COVID-19 from every single angle, from the aid you're getting from government to governments and politics being played in the middle of all of this. Right the way to cleaning your home. COVID-19 on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Great to talk to everybody again from uh, Studio Thompson. I think a question a lot of people are asking, as of earlier this morning, uh, 12 midnight, this uh, 12 o'clock in the morning, I should say, not midnight, uh, on Thursday, uh, the the mandated 14-day quarantine has gone into effect for anyone that is traveling uh, and coming back into Canada. And March break ended on the weekend, so why this is now happening on the following Thursday is beyond me. Why this wasn't done earlier is beyond me. Uh, you know that I have a, a huge bone to pick with the Prime Minister in regard to all of this because I felt on Friday he was basically saying, well, it was jumping around the issue. He wasn't being clear. And, he, you know, we got to listen to the experts. we got to listen to the experts instead of just coming out and say, stay home. you got to stay home. And one way to do that for travelers coming in from another country is to mandate a quarantine period. So what's the difference between you saying we should all be doing it and mandating a quarantine? Just do it. Make the call. Make the tough call, Prime Minister. And then he comes on on Monday and starts scolding everybody for not listening to the message that he didn't give in the first place. And, and, you know, I'm tired of having my, you know, the, the PM waving his finger at me like I'm a little kid in a sandbox or a student in his drama class. Make the tough call, Mr. Prime Minister. This should have been done before the one million Canadians arrived home last week. That's when this should have been done. I mean, it, it, it amazes me to no end. That being said, uh... <laughs> Here's what the Prime Minister had to say when asked that very question. Uh, right across the country, we've seen Canadians uh, following the guidelines, taking very seriously the recommendations of uh, public health agencies. Uh, we have seen uh, people staying at home. We have seen people keeping uh, two meters distant from each other. We've seen people uh, engaged in uh, hand washing and and using uh, using hand sanitizer. Uh, we know that uh, the vast majority of Canadians have been following the guidelines set out for the their own protection and for the protection uh, of all of us. Unfortunately, uh, there is, are a number of people who have not been following the guidelines that are there for their protection, which is why we've had to take uh, this next step of bringing in the Quarantine Act uh, to ensure that uh, Canadians who do not follow the instructions to self-quarantine for 14 days, self-isolate for 14 days immediately upon uh, re-entering Canada, um, there will be they will be facing uh, fines and perhaps even jail time. All right, let's bring in Dr. Anna Banerjee uh, and post MD education faculty of Medicine University of Toronto and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Your thoughts on the announcement of the 14 day quarantine that went in effect today? Um, I, I think I agree with you that this should have been done before. And I think what they're saying now is for the people who have arrived in the past 14 days before the quarantine 
became into effect, it strongly suggested that they stay at home. I think it shouldn't be strongly suggested they must stay at home. Anyone who's come back from uh, traveling um, in the past 14 days must stay at home. And, in, and I think the problem is now it's the Quarantine Act, so they can implement uh, laws and, and um, sorry, enforcement of that. But in the past 14 days, we don't really know who has come into the country from overseas. Um, and so it's very difficult to implement it. I think society, uh, we need to implement it. We need to tell people, if we know that someone's come back from Florida from the March break trip, you need to be at home. You need to quarantine yourself at least 14 days after arriving home. So it, as a societal obligation, uh, going back even beyond the quarantine. So it seemed that the message from the Prime Minister changed from Friday to uh, to Sunday. I, I mean, what is the disadvantage of just uh, invoking the Quarantine Act? There doesn't seem to be any downside of this, as opposed to just assuming everybody would do it. Or, you know, I don't even th- think we got that direct message from the Prime Minister. Basically, what he was saying on Friday was heed the advice of the experts. And, of course, the experts were saying that. But to me, that's passing the buck. What is What is the harm in invoking a quarantine period ahead of time? Um, I think that uh, a lot of the people in the government and the public health agency are very overwhelmed, and they're dealing with many issues at the same uh, time. And I and I think that this is something where it should have been invoked, knowing that people are coming back to the country, that people, that many many people are on March break, um, were on March break, and they're coming back. Um, it, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I think. Mm-hmm. Even at this point in time, we need to, even if it's only applicable with the Quarantine Act as far as enforcing it, um, it needs to be done now. And I think, I believe it should have been done before. Um, uh, you mentioned that uh, anybody coming in now has to abide by this. But as you mentioned, what about the people that have been coming in since the weekend uh, or even the earlier part? Because everybody was trying to get back early from their vacation. What about that million people that came in? Uh, I- I'm sure the majority of them are, are heeding the advice. I hope they are. But as the prime minister says, I mean, not everybody obeys the law. Why he didn't understand that at the beginning, I'm not sure. But what what about those people who have already arrived? Uh should they be quarantined? Yes. Everyone who has come into the country, um, you know, in the past 14 days needs to be self-quarantined. So um, I don't think that that message has gotten out uh, as strongly as I would have liked to have seen, that, that, that all these people coming in, the millions of people that came in, they need to be in self-quarantine. Um, and uh, they need to reach out to their communities, to their neighbours, to their friends, to volunteers to get them to come and give them uh, groceries. They should not be going out. Um, they need to keep whoever we're, we're traveling together uh, separate from the, the, the general public. Um, so I think that that really needs to be enforced uh, or emphasized. And, uh, you know, again, they, can, they may not be able to use the Quarantine Act uh, for people that um, right. before that was in effect. But we can, as a society, we know that um, someone was traveling. We can say, you need to be at home, and how can I help you do that? So rather than punishing mm. people, let's mm-hmm. enable our friends and neighbors who have returned back uh, to 
do the right thing and quarantine themselves. I think not too many people would intentionally want to put other people at risk. Some people may not understand um, the seriousness of this, but we need to, as society, say, no, you must quarantine yourself. And that's how we reduce the risk of this escalating in the next little while. It will escalate. Uh, it, we will get more uh, cases in the next little while, especially as it's changed from travel-related uh, to community spread. But but for which eat for each individual that potentially harbors uh, coronavirus, if we can get them to stay at home, that's one little mini outbreak we avoid. That's uh, that's a few more people that don't get infected, or a few healthcare providers that don't get infected. So it's really really important that people stay at home. So should this message, should, should the Prime Minister's message, the, the government message, be readjusted to say everyone who has arrived in the last two weeks should be, should be doing this? I believe so. Uh, what about a second wave? Uh, you know, many, uh, we're still seeing the rise of cases today. Uh, another uh, 170 new cases in Ontario today, 858 the total for Ontario uh, at this point. Um, have we even hit the pe- the peak yet to see a second wave? I don't think we've hit we've hit the peak yet. And so before and in the next little while, with all these people coming back uh, from March break, um, we who who didn't quarantine themselves, there were are going to be more cases related to travel. Um, but but then what's going to happen is that we're going to start losing the link to travel as it starts being. Uh, being spread in the community. That being said, the fact that we have been practicing social distancing and most people in Canada have gone have um, gone along with that, that means that what we probably would have seen would have been much more severe, much more drastic than what we're seeing right now. You know, we have, um, uh, you know, we're still rising in the number of cases that so far we've only had, as, as far as I know, 35 deaths in Canada. So we've I think we have been able to flatten that curve by people cooperating and staying at home. But um, I believe that it's you know it's going to rise, but the 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 peak of that um, and the rapidity of that has been averted by the social distancing. How concerned are you as a doctor in regard to the shortage of supplies? We're finding out today that uh, the federal government back in February sent 16 tons of supplies to China, uh, the very supplies we seem to be running out of now. Uh, Will China reciprocate with that? Uh, What's China doing for us at this point? Should we have sent those away? You know, I think that if you see a part of the world in crisis, it's your responsibility globally to help that part of the world in crisis. And so um, at this point in time, if China has all these supplies, then I'm not, I'm not uh, in the, I'm not a politician, so I don't have any say in what's going to happen. But now I would expect that other parts of the world help us um, bring in supplies. And I, from what I hear through the grapevine, there are, there are um, masks, and gloves not being uh, transported. And, and what I also hear is that there are, in some hospitals there are some shortages or there's a fear of shortages with an increasing number of coronavirus. So, But I think, I believe that the government is working uh, very hard on getting those supplies to the people at, at the highest risk, mainly health care providers. 
Uh, as we talked uh, a minute ago, uh, last week there was apparently, uh, they were saying in upwards of one million travelers that came back to Canada uh, many early because, uh, A, they were closing the borders and, and airlines and, and, and such restricting travel and such. So uh, approximately one million visitors came back to Canada uh, last week. Um, when will we see the wave or the result of that that you were speaking of earlier? Is that a week from now? Is it two weeks from now? Any idea? It, it probably will start in about um, a week or so in the incubation period. You're going to get the, the people that were infected overseas starting to show symptoms. And hopefully they're self-isolating. But if they were not self-isolating, if they don't take that seriously, then you're going to start to see uh, those people who are infected starting to infect other people. And that's the importance of social distancing. But if what once, um, you know, some of those millions of people that came back, uh, if they do start infecting other people, then we'll probably start seeing an escalation in the next uh, several weeks. What advice do you have for Canadians and, well, those that are listening to us and, and maybe even from around the world that are, that are in, into week two of this? And uh, the novelty has certainly worn off. Reality has set in. What are your thoughts? What's your concerns moving forward? I think that um, as this is prolonged, there might be people who get uh, very apathetic about social distancing or uh, become very stressed. Um, I'm sure this is a very major psychological stressor. It's like being in a war zone at this point in time. Um, Again, we're all in it together, um, and we're all experiencing the same kinds of feelings. And uh, people who are very used to being productive and working, all of a sudden they're stuck at home and they can't go out. People can't exercise the way they normally do. It's very, very stressful, but this will pass. It will pass. This is not the way it's going to be forever. We... You know, it might be a few difficult weeks, even a few difficult months, but I think we're all doing the right thing. At least the vast majority of us are doing the right thing. This will pass, and we will eventually go back to our lives. And so just not to give up hope and and to get too stressed out about it, because, you know, we're doing what we can. This will pass. Dr. Anna, uh, Dr. Anna Banerjee has been with us, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you in the medical community working so hard to find a solution to all of this. We appreciate that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, uh, again, as we look at the many angles of COVID-19 and how it is affecting various people, industries, uh, agencies and such. uh, And one thing that comes to mind is emergency services, uh, paramedics, fire department, police. How have they changed the way they do things. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Michael Sanderson is with us, uh, Paramedics Chief, City of Hamilton, and on the line with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I appreciate it. So how has this changed life if you're a paramedic? What's different now than it was a, a few weeks ago? Well, it, it's really the, the difference for our paramedics is we're, we're much more aware of it. I mean, we've always been aware of infectious diseases. Uh, many of us lived through SARS. We've lived through the H1N1. We've lived through MERS. Uh, we, we've always dealt with these. 
but it's much more real now in terms of actually seeing it in your community instead of reading about it online and looking at the, the public images from other countries. Uh, it's here now and, and we're dealing with it. Having said that, our paramedics uh, understand what they're supposed to do. They're well trained in the process. Uh, they're used to dealing with these types of issues. And I have to say uh, they're dealing with it extremely well now in, in the process. So what happens when uh, a paramedic arrives on a call? Is the protocol any different? Uh, Are they asking different questions? How do they know what they're walking into? Well, the actual calls in the screen, it actually happens on the dispatch end first, and, and the dispatch center is asking specific questions to identify whether the patient's a potentially COVID-19 patient. Uh, obviously, we have many patients to call them with similar types of symptoms, uh, patients that have a cough, patients that have the flu, and influenza is still a major issue within our community as well. We're just looking at the epidemiological tracking for that with public health, uh, we have far more influenza patients than we do COVID patients, at least ones that are diagnosed. Uh, that may end up changing as the diagnosis and the testings uh, go further. Having said that, uh, dispatch screens the call. If they screen the call as a COVID positive, uh, we dispatch additional resources to it to make sure we have proper protective equipment on, we have proper resources on the scene. Uh, we send a second vehicle called the emergency response vehicle, and we also assign a supervisor to help to manage the process. And that's really just all about making sure that our paramedics are protected from the COVID, which appears to be quite contagious so far. If dispatch is screened, it, our, our paramedics still do a second screening on scene with the same types of questions. Uh, and if, even if dispatch screened the call as a negative, our paramedics still do an assessment on the scene. Uh, from there, we utilize additional protective equipment. Uh, the absolute minimum protective equipment is a surgical mask. Uh, it's uh, the gloves that we would end up wearing in a process, as well as eye protection, because we don't want it to get through our mucous membranes and so on. Uh, if they're a high-risk procedure or high-risk for the patient, paramedics are gowning up. They'll put an additional gown on. Um, they'll also put on face protection, uh, and they'll end up putting on an N95 mask rather than a surgical face mask. And, of course, that's done by the paramedic with their on-scene uh, and, and their site assessment in terms of their risk and the potential for doing different procedures on the patient that are required. Uh, but, but those are all normal processes. Uh, we've just... Uh, built more into the activity and we know that we're having more of those patients now so it's happening more often. Uh, so uh, hopefully a lot of this information is found out by the dispa- uh, dispatcher before the paramedic actually arrives. Yeah, I'm looking at our monitor right now. We actually have two calls uh, that have been screened by dispatch as being COVID-19 positive. So I have two different paramedic crews that are responding on those calls right now. Right. And so uh, so they know they're going into a situation right now where there is a COVID-19 uh, a patient. How is that a different call from going to a traditional call? So how will they show up? Well, they'll, they'll show up as a COVID-19. They'll, they'll put on additional protective equipment. Uh, they'll right. do the site assessment and the risk assessment. They'll ask questions on arrival on scene. And if necessary, they'll put on additional equipment on the scene uh, based upon their evaluation of of the risk uh, and what they're going to have to do uh, in the activity. You know, a paramedic in the back of an ambulance is essentially in a 4 by 8 office in close proximity to a patient uh, that may or may not be spreading additional germs, if you want to call it that, uh, but, but the reality is we, we really don't know whether they're COVID positive at the time, we just know that they're screened as positive and the actual positive testing doesn't come back until they've had public health testing and results back from uh, Public Health Ontario. Have you seen a jump in these type of cases where you're getting calls for people who believe they may have this? 
Well, we've certainly seen a jump in it. Uh, this week so far, uh, up to 7 o'clock this morning, we've done 35 responses for COVID-19 patients. Uh, last week, we did 38. So uh, we're only partway through the week now. We've done 35. It was 38 for all of last week. So it has gone up in the number. Uh, out of those, 10 of them were no patient carries. Uh, we didn't transport them to hospital. The patient refused transport. Uh, those patients are all referred off to public health for follow-up. Uh, but, but we're managing that level of activity, and in total, our call volume has gone down slightly as people are you know, reluctant to go to emergency departments, and then they're looking at what they need to do in terms of self-care. Um, uh, what about uh, those that, you know, many have uh, other ailments or other flus at this time of the year and maybe confusing them from COVID, uh, with COVID-19? Are you seeing that at all, where people, you're getting called for, for, you know, flu-type symptoms but necessarily aren't COVID-19? Yeah, thank you for that. And that, that's a really important part for people to remember. About, you know, 95% of our calls a day are not COVID-related, uh, but we still end up getting calls that are potential. Uh, it's very difficult for us to assess that. Uh, the only way to really tell the difference between uh, an influenza-type call and a COVID call uh, is to have the patient tested through public health. Or they're a symptomatic patient. If they have a history and a background, uh, for example, a travel history or contact with somebody that's had known COVID uh, diagnosis already, uh, we have to treat them that way, but we don't actually know that they are. So uh, some of the patients we have as COVID positive on our screen obviously are going to end up being influenza or they could just be the simple common cold. And what about when uh, your paramedics would transport these uh, patients to a hospital? What's the, is the process different when entering the hospital knowing you have a patient that could be COVID-19 positive? It is. Actually, in the transport, uh, we, we have a second vehicle that has responded to the scene, and we have a, a third person drive the ambulance to the hospital because the paramedics that are in, with the patient already have the protective equipment on. So rather than doffing or taking off all the protective equipment for the driver, we have somebody else drive the vehicle. Uh, the two paramedics stay in the back with the patient. We've done a walkthrough with each hospital to make sure that we have the, the proper process. We do a pre-notification of the ho- to the hospital of what we have coming into them so they're aware of the issues. Uh, we have specific locations to arrive at the hospital, a specific area to, to hand over the patient, uh, as well as uh, the doffing or the removal of our protective equipment and the cleaning up of our stretcher and the other equipment that's involved in the call. What about any paramedic staff? Has anybody come down? Is anybody off with flu-like type symptoms, uh, symptoms or COVID-19 type systems, uh, symptoms rather? Is this starting to affect uh, the service and, and your employees? Well, we do have some paramedics that are off with uh, potential COVID-related symptoms. Uh, we have paramedics that are off on self-isolation for travel. Uh, we have patients that are off on self-isolation following a contact with a COVID patient that are not symptomatic. So like every other industry uh, within the city, uh, we have some people that are involved. We have uh, almost 400 full and part-time paramedics. Clearly with uh, that size of a workforce, you're going to have some individuals that, that, that re are in contact with and potentially symptomatic uh, just from local community contact. Uh, we do have three paramedics that have been isolated in self-isolation as a result of unprotected contact at work where they didn't have the full PPE on and uh, they're in contact with a potential COVID patient. So they're in self-isolation right now and they have been for several days. Uh, any shortage of staff as a result of all of this? Sorry, I, I missed that. Any shortage of staff as a result of all of this? 
No, I'm actually very pleased with uh, the performance of our staff uh, through the result of overtime, through the utilization of part-time staff, and through people coming in and stepping up to do the job. Uh, we have full staffing. We've had full staffing every day since the emergency operating center, uh, emergency operations center was put into place. Uh, we have no shortage of staff at all. Uh, I can tell you right now at this point in, in the day, I've got 66 paramedics on the road covering 31 ambulances and four response vehicles. I also have four supervisors on the road. So uh, there's not an issue or a concern with us with staffing. Uh, we're looking after that quite well. And uh, I think the important thing for people to remember for ourselves and for other healthcare workers, you know, our paramedics and healthcare workers are going to be there for them. We really want them to stay home for us. Uh, we talked earlier with uh, the city of Hamilton, and they were talking about the emergency operations center that has set up. Obviously, you people are very much a part of that. Yes, we are. And your role in that? Uh, my role is representing the paramedic service activity. We're part of the operations section. Operations includes uh, representation from police, uh, from fire services, from public works, uh, from public health, and a variety of other areas uh, in the operations. Uh, there's an operations chief, which is being filled by uh, an individual, and the operations chief reports to the ELC director. Uh, and what happens when a when a paramedic does come in contact, has to put on the full gear, and does have uh, come in contact with a patient that does have COVID nineteen? That is proven, uh, let's say, and you know they've done their service and in, in, in all the great work that they do. Is there some special process that now that paramedic has to go through because whether they're wearing the gear or not, they have become in contact with a patient who's positive? Well, that's exactly the point of making sure that you wear the gear. When you have proper protective equipment on, uh, the only thing that's required to do is to take off the equipment, to doff the equipment is the, the term that we use. Uh, we have donning and doffing of equipment. Uh, and if you've taken the, the equipment and worn it properly, uh, the equipment is just removed. Uh, you're decontaminating the surfaces that are involved. Other than that, there's no special uh, activities. Uh, we track individuals who have been in contact with potential COVID patients. Uh, but the, the ones that we get concerned about is where we have unprotected contact. Uh, for example, if they didn't uh, suspect a COVID patient, they found out afterwards the patient was COVID, and that can happen. Uh, if they didn't have the proper protective equipment on, that's where we put the paramedics off into self-isolation until we find out whether or not the patient actually had COVID from the public health testing. What actually happens to the vehicle, the ambulance that transports? You said that uh, the two will stay in the back that have the gear on and they'll actually get a separate person to drive the, the vehicle. What happens to that vehicle? You, you said a, a small office in the back. What happens to it once it has transported a COVID-19 patient? What's the process? It's just a normal cleaning process with the Virox equipment that we currently carry. And uh, is that... that we it, carry... It, go ahead. I was going to say that... The, the equipment that we carry is, is normal equipment. Uh, we know that uh, the chemicals used in Virox are effective on all of the surfaces involved. Uh, there is no risk in terms of uh, that level of activity. If we believe that there's been uh, significant exposure in the back of the vehicle, we have another process where we can pull the vehicle out of service, we put the crew into a spare vehicle, and have the vehicle cleaned at our central station downtown on Victoria Street. Now you said uh, you said, Michael, that uh, it, it seems you've got a full staff. Everybody's uh, this is all working quite well with with the paramedics uh, in Hamilton and such. Uh, what are your challenges moving forward? What are your concerns as you see how this is developing? 
Well, our concerns are, I think, looking at where it's going to ramp up. We've seen what's happened in other jurisdictions, uh, talking to our friends in the States and other countries. Uh, we know that it may end up ramping up. We may have more patients that need to be moved. Uh, certainly, we know that the hospitals are working in the activity to, to free up space. Uh, we get concerned about personal protective equipment and the availability of it, uh, making sure that we can continue as it ramps up. Uh, the number of patients that we're dealing with right now is relatively small. Uh, if we get to an area or a level like they have had in Italy or in some parts of the U.S., for example, New York City, uh, we, we get very concerned about that level of it, and we have some strains trying to keep up to it. But uh, we'll be able to manage that, I believe, in terms of the process, and uh, uh, we just continue to work on it. How concerned are you about supplies? We've heard uh, in, in some situations uh, medical staff are, are concerned in hospitals and such about supplies. Any concern for EMS? Well, we currently have an adequate level of supplies for all of our paramedics as we're dealing with the calls. Uh, we're working on additional backup supplies as we move forward. We do have some contingency plans in place for alternatives, uh, but it continues to be a challenge finding it uh, on a national and on an international basis. I can tell you from different calls that I've been on over the last few days, including in the last few hours, uh, the supply chain seems to be freeing up a bit. Uh, it's quite pricey right now uh, in terms of the activity. It seems like the marketplace is uh, covering uh, that level of activity very nicely. Uh, however, uh, we'll continue to work on it, and uh, I- I'm not pulling any panic buttons right now. And still for you, this is a very, very, very small percentage of the calls that you do on a regular basis. Is that accurate? That's accurate. We had uh, 10 patients yesterday, and uh, in total we transported uh, about 108 patients to hospital yesterday. So there's 10 patients that we treated as COVID positive, and uh, that was uh, around 10% of our volume for transports yesterday. And, of course, our transports doesn't represent all the patients we went to. We actually had about 180 responses yesterday. So if by chance during all of this chaos, crisis, whatever you want to call it, you need a paramedic, what advice do you give for those that are calling in? If you need a paramedic, if you have an emergency situation, call 911. We'll be there for you. Uh, This doesn't affect our normal 911 responses. Uh, Look after yourself in in the activity, but our our paramedics are available uh, for emergency calls, and that's really what we want you to utilize us for. In the meantime, you know, I just remind everybody in the process, make sure you're washing your hands, keep your physical distance, do that self-isolation, stay home, avoid non-essential travel, avoid group processes. And the other part I just really try to stress in the process, when we talk about self-isolation, I think you mentioned it earlier on your show, self-isolation does mean isolate. It doesn't mean you can go to the grocery store. It doesn't mean you can go to the liquor store. Self-isolation means at home self-isolation for 14 days. Uh, and, and that's really, I think, the, the risk in that community. If, if we don't have people following that and um, they go through in the community, we're going to continue to have community spread of this disease. And that's really where it seems to be heading right now. So if you are in need of a paramedic and it, it's gotten that severe and you think you may have this, what should you say to the dispatch, a dispatcher when you're, when you're calling uh, or someone who's question. calling for you? Answer the questions truthfully, and and they're going to be asking the questions about whether you've received public health or medical advice to self-monitor, to self-isolate. Does the patient have a new fever or a new onset of cough or difficulty breathing? Has the person had travel from outside of Canada in the 14 days before the onset of the illness? And also, did the person have close contact with a person with acute respiratory illness who returned from travel outside of Canada within 14 days prior to their illness onset? So those, those questions tend to end up 
getting it very clearly. And of course, if you've already been diagnosed with COVID-19, make sure that you tell us you, you have actually had COVID-19 uh, testing and it's positive, or that you've had close contact with a confirmed COVID-19 patient. Uh, those are the key questions for us for our protection, uh, but we'll still respond. It does not delay the response at all. Michael Sanderson has been with us, paramedic chief city of Hamilton. Michael, thank you so much for all that you do. Pass that along to your staff. We understand they're working long and working hard, and we certainly appreciate everything they're doing to keep us safe. Much appreciated. You take care. Thank you very much, Scott. Appreciate the time. Uh, And we've certainly got lots of email in regard to this industry as well. Uh, Many emailing from construction sites concerned about their health and safety and what they are doing and what conditions are like on the site. Let's bring in Richard Lyle, President, Residential Construction Council of Ontario. He is with us now. Richard, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we've been hearing and been getting a lot of email over the past week in regard to people who are in construction sites and fearing for uh, their health and, and, and those that are not self-isolating or weren't taking this seriously enough. What can you tell us uh, from the uh, Construction Council of Ontario? How are you handling these situations? How are you handling these calls? So first, let me say that, you know, uh, the construction industry and construction sites are full of uh, safety-trained professionals. Uh, Of course, this whole crisis has uh, introduced an entirely new element into the situation. We got together with the other sectors of construction and and, uh, so on and came up with a new protocol to address it. Uh, that was uh, 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 endorsed by Labor and Management, the IHSA, and, and uh, of course, into the Ministry of Labor. So they've been disseminated, and um, we're, uh, we've implemented and are implementing uh, the additional provisions. So what are those new protocols? Give us an example. So, yeah, they, they concern things like sanitation, sanitizers, uh, uh, social distancing. Uh, they concern uh, um, uh, facilities, you know, uh, 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 like uh, porta-potties and bathrooms and washing up and also provisions related to reporting. And, uh, you know, if someone does not feel well for whatever reason, they go home. Um, you know, largely common sense measures, but they need to be articulated and documented, and they have been. Have you heard uh, the concerns of the construction industry in the last week in regard to this? What are they What are they asking for? What are they saying? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we this is a very chaotic uh, period. I don't have to tell you that. Um, uh, because uh, construction is a very complex industry. Um, I don't think there is a single person in the industry that is not concerned, and certainly any of our site personnel, management, uh, you know, uh, and trades are concerned. Uh, I think they're all taking this, uh, of course, uh, uh, very seriously. Um, certainly from uh, what we've seen, I'm impressed by the response from the industry uh, in trying to uh, keep things going uh, under extremely difficult circumstances. Are you concerned that more actions may need to be taken or sites may need to be closed down uh, if, if this gets out of hand? I mean, how concerned are you about the spread on a site? 
I'm very confident that uh, our sites and uh, our our member builders are capable of um, uh, managing the site requirements. We've already seen a staggering of shifts, a reduction of uh, the amount of people that can get on hoists, the uh, requirement that, uh, you know, the congregation at lunch, of course, that's over. Uh, there's more trailers and uh, more facilities that are being procured right now um, uh, so we can uh, uh, prevent uh, but provide uh, services but prevent uh, opportunities for people to congregate. But I think the, uh, the workers are well aware of these factors, too. What should someone do, uh, a worker, tradesperson, what have you, what should someone do if they feel that they're not safe on the site, that, that these rules have not been followed? What should they do? Well, there's a number of things they can do. They, they, can, they can leave the site. Uh, they can uh, certainly, uh, I would hope that if someone, because, you know, one thing that uh, uh, we know and, and I think most people know is that on a site, everyone's in it together. So if there's a problem that it's reported, uh, and there's various ways of reporting things like that or, or, or raising a complaint about something. Um, but certainly uh, one of the things that we're quite aware of in the industry is that we do have people that are working or were working that have, say, for example, grandparents at home or another consideration where they've got someone at home that has a compromised immune system or something like that. And, uh, you know, the industry uh, understands that. And if they're not comfortable working, then that's that's acceptable. What about those that feel that uh, or fear that they will lose work if they if they talk, if they speak up? You know, I, I've seen uh, some complaints like that uh, where if somebody says, well, if I refuse work and then uh, and I and I leave the site, uh, for example, and I try to come back later on, I'm going to be penalized. I, uh, I frankly, I don't see that happening at all. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't some bad people in our world. I mean, that's why, you know, we, we do have that. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't see that happening. I, I think the bigger issue is going to be, uh, um, uh, you know, COVID-19 is going to be with us for a while. This is not a situation where we could have, certainly as you pointed out with all the people coming back, what do we got? Five hundred thousand people coming back from the states uh, last week and still coming uh, that are largely unchecked. I mean, if the situation is still very live, it's going to be a while for things to settle down. So, um, you know, uh, uh, I think actually the job sites uh, with all the rules that we have in place are pretty safe places currently. But, you know, people are worried. There's no doubt about that. And the industry understands that. And we, uh, the unions understand that. Um, uh, people do have concerns. Uh, if there is a site where they're just ignoring, uh, you know, these protocols, as the premier said, they'll get shut down and they should be shut down. How has this or has this slowed down the construction business at all? How much of a, how much of a stick in the spokes has this been for the industry? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we've had some companies that have um, uh, suspended operations temporarily to regroup. Um, we have we're, we're, our workforce has been depleted somewhat for the reasons that we've uh, discussed. 
we've got some supply chain problems uh, that uh, aren't uh, 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 that will become more serious. Uh, for example, you know, I was just on a call where we've got doors that are procured out of Quebec, and uh, they're not going to be available for a while. Um, and then, of course, productivity, and we get this and we understand this, but productivity is taking a beating, um, uh, but that's okay. Uh, so, for example, you know, on hoist, if you've got to limit the amount of people you can move up and down on hoist on a high-rise project, well, that means that work is going to slow down. And if you don't have the full complement of crews you have, that means that work is going to slow down. And that's just the reality today. Uh, and I would say one other thing, too, is that this all caught everyone uh, by, I don't want to say by surprise, but this came on very quickly. Um, so there is, a, uh, there is a bit of a chaos and adjustment going on right now to this uh, sort of new normal. And, um, and I think, uh, and, you know, uh, keep in mind that other things could happen in the next few weeks or whatever, but I think that will settle down. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, some people that are off work for a period of time because our industry does pay well, if they're on EI or whatever, that, that, that could become a pressure point. But I see the federal and provincial governments uh, have indicated that they're doing things there to, to assist with that. But it wouldn't be the same as, uh, you know, business as usual, right? Richard, what advice do you have for workers that are on a site during this time? What I would say to them, and, and one thing I would say, too, is that, the, you know, probably the smartest people I know on this planet are construction workers. It's a very, uh, you know, they're very uh, well-trained. Uh, they're professionals. Um, just uh, be mindful of the hazards. Uh, there's more discipline that's going to have to be applied to uh, hand washing, uh, sanitation, uh, cleaning tools. Um, and, and that kind of thing, keeping your distance. And certainly if you see something wrong, uh, or see something that you're concerned about, definitely raise it, uh, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, alert people to the hazard. Richard Lyle has been with us, President, Residential Construction Council of Ontario, and uh, telling us how this has affected the construction business and what they're doing to keep their workers safe. Richard, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with all of this. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, lots of angles to this story and lots of weird little asides to it. Here's another one. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump is looking to put troops near the Canadian border amid COVID-19 fears. I understand this is in regard to illegal immigration. Let's bring in Amanda Conley, a national online journalist for Global News. She is with us now. Amanda, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. So how did this story originate? Where did this all come from? So this story comes from our bureau chief, Mercedes Stevenson. Mercedes Stevenson. She broke it earlier this morning uh, based on sources that she is getting here from uh, American government officials, basically. And, and what we're hearing is that uh, these concerns, these border concerns are coming out of Donald Trump's White House um, and is prompting these discussions around whether to put troops near the Canadian borders to try and figure out... Um, to, to basically try and try and kind of screen and identify uh, folks who they think are 
a concern coming in irregularly across the border. So again, this is people who would not be crossing at official points of entry. Um, and so it's really raising a lot of questions here about, again, what, what is the rationale for this? Um, how did this get started? Uh, and really kind of what they're hoping to target here, because we know, of course, that there aren't really a lot of people who do cross from Canada to the U.S. at irregular points of entry. We really tend to see this coming up in the context of that influx of irregular border seekers that we've seen, sorry, irregular border crossers that we've seen over the last couple of years coming from the U.S. into Canada. So what is the reasoning for this? What reasoning are they giving? Uh, And again, I mean, I understand that when they did close the border down between Canada and the United States uh, for everyone except non-essential services, that the U.S. was concerned about holes in the fence and such. But again, that's people trying to get out of America, not people from going from Canada back into America. So is 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 there concern people who are leaving the United States? Well, so I mean, as, as far as we know right now, the, the, the concern here is about helping border guards um, in the, in, on the U.S. side of things here detect irregular crossers. And of course, it raises a lot of questions about whether, you know, this is coming uh, amid the, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, when did these discussions begin? Is there something bigger going on here? Uh, and, and we just don't know the answers to those questions at this point. As I mentioned, uh, this is a story that our bureau chief broke earlier this morning and that we're certainly uh, following up on, on on a number of different angles to try and get more information, more clarity about how this would work, why it's being discussed. Because of course, the, the, the you know, we do know that the border itself has been largely broadly uh, shut down. There are some exemptions to that, but um, again, there, there's a lot of concern, a lot of fear. I think on on um, both sides of the border right now, and for Canadians in particular, that that really is is dealing with. You know, uh, do we need to do more to try and address the, the challenges that the U.S. is certainly encountering right now in, the, in their own response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say about this. The fact that the Canada-U.S. border is the longest unmilitarized border in the world is something that has benefited our two countries and our both economies tremendously, uh, and uh, we feel uh, that it needs to remain that way. Uh, could this be that they need more personnel at the border to help with screening and such, Amanda? So, I mean, that that certainly was um, one of the questions that I had when I was first look, kind of looking looking over this and looking into this. But again, you have to look at the context here domestically in the U.S. The U.S. does have rules that, um, again, their, their military would be used in, in more of a support cap capacity in these circumstances. And so uh, what we're hearing is that the troops would actually be stationed about 30 kilometers from the border, so not actually on the border uh, line there, but um, and they would be using sensor technology to try and detect these irregular crossers that they're concerned about before then passing that on to border patrol agents who would then be the ones actually tasked to intercept the irregular crossers. And so, again, they, they, there are a lot, of, um, a lot of questions still to be answered here. That, that big concern, though, being, you know, uh, Canada and, and the U.S. do have that unmilitarized border. It is a key part of ensuring that the trade flow that we rely on uh, here in Canada and in the U.S. as well, frankly, can remain open and flowing. And and that um, particularly given the economic concerns that are emerging as a result of the pandemic right now. This does seem odd considering that, you know, the issue along the border has been people fleeing America to come to Ontario, not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's certainly kind of part of this puzzling context around here and part of why we're, we're trying to figure out more details about 
um, what exactly is going on here. Because again, as, as you mentioned, uh, we know that over the past couple of years, the, the real, uh, I guess one of the big challenges you could say that the government has, has faced is their response to uh, irregular border crossers coming into Canada from the U.S., and, and being able to identify and, and uh, process those people through, through our system domestically. And so, again, uh, we're really looking at um, a, a lot of uncertainty and questions here. And again, this is all coming to as Canada is invoking the Quarantine Act to, to require anyone who does cross the border at either, you know, official points of entry here through airports or whatever, whatever means you're talking about, um, to go into isolation for 14 days because of the concerns about the way that this is spreading around the world right now and it's spreading so quickly. Um, what about those uh, in border towns? What are their concerns in regard to all of this? So we've not heard um, direct responses from folks who are living in border towns right now. Of course, we do know that um, there, you know, people across the country have been expressing concerns about um, whether the border measures being taken are strong enough uh, so far. We know that those have been questions that the government has been asked about repeatedly over the last couple of weeks here, especially in uh, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the briefings that he's giving daily here. Again, we're seeing repeated questioning from reporters, and we saw this even this morning when he spoke uh, to, to reporters from Rideau Cottage, um, again and again hammered on. Why didn't you close the border sooner? We knew that these were problems, these mm. were challenges that are out there. Why didn't you act more quickly to to take this kind of action that people um, seem to be calling for and there seems to be a lot of support for? So uh, again, they're they're getting a lot of um, a lot of questions right now about the response to this, particularly uh, questions being raised about some of the early responses or the lack of uh, the lack of mandatory quarantine be- being put in place um, and why that was put in place only uh, only overnight over the past 24 hours here, given that we've had this, this large number of people coming in over March break and the number of Canadians returning home as commercial options have been shut down. Yeah, and considering most of us are self-isolating anyway, I, I don't know why they just didn't announce the 14-day quarantine right at the beginning when they when all, all the Canadians were coming back and, and the Prime Minister was asking Canadians to come home now. Uh, why not just do it then? Because, you know, I mean, I didn't even travel and I'm doing this. <laughs> so yeah, it I, just I, seems, I don't see the downfalls of, a, of, a, of invoking the Quarantine Act. Yeah, and, you know, I think, I think that's... Um that confusion is certainly being reflected in, in again, uh, day after day now, we're seeing repeated and consistent questioning of the Prime Minister on, on why did you not act sooner to do this? Uh, why is it only coming into place now? And we're really not getting any clear answers uh, from Trudeau on that. You know, you, you look at the, the questions that he was, he was asked today and the responses that he was giving and basically saying that uh, it's been, you know, his, his response to these questions has been that, there's been a requirement from the beginning for people to uh, to do this. And, of course, we know that the, the government has been telling people when they come across the border that uh, I, I guess basically you could say that they've been directing them or ordering them to do this um, voluntary self-isolation for 14 days. But, of course, as, you're, as we were talking about here, the Quarantine Act is what actually gives that, makes that a legal obligation. That has only just been put in place. So, um, a lot of questions, a lot of uh, criticism uh, as well from different corners being raised here and, and really not a lot of clear answers about why this was not done sooner. Amanda Connolly has been with us, national online journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Amanda, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Take care. Thank you. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.